Before we start, I want to let you know about something very exciting that's happening in a few weeks. We are launching a side project sprint. What is that? Well, it's four weeks of sessions to help you with your side project by putting aside time to work on it, sharing your progress and getting feedback from a small group of people working on their own side projects. Whether you've just launched your side project or you've had a side project for a while, accountability, structure and feedback really is the difference between a thriving side project and an abandoned one. It's a great way to get motivated and to see your side project grow if that's what you're looking to do. So head to outofhours.org slash courses to join in. I hope to see you there. You could think it's easy for someone to have a great idea and to be really good at designing cycling clothing. On top of that, you will have to negotiate, you will have to negotiate with the factory, you will have to be a salesperson, you will have to talk to the bank, to do so many different things. And of course, you will be really bad at some, but there's no other option at the beginning. Welcome to the Out of Hours podcast, the podcast for people who are creating things they think should exist in the world. I'm Georgia Ritter, founder of outofhours.org, a community for people with side projects. Over the last year, I've been spending my time exploring how to help more people progress the ideas that they're interested in. I believe that everyone has a great idea, and working on things we care about can help us be more creative, more resilient, and more confident. But there are barriers that stop us from starting. Sometimes time, money, or network, but also self-belief, not knowing where to start and wondering what other people might think. On this show, I'll explore the stories of people who have followed their curiosity, been brave and started a side project, only to turn it into something much bigger than they ever thought possible. I'll explore the stories of nonprofits, businesses, creative projects and social movements to understand the practical first steps they took, the doors these small ideas can open, and the magic that happens when you start taking your own ideas seriously. Today on the podcast, we have Rémi Clermont, founder of Café du Cycliste. Rémi started Café du Cycliste on a belief that cycling can make us really happy and that not all cyclists want to look like pro cyclists. As always, this is not a neat entrepreneurial story. Leaving a job in marketing at an IT firm, he went all in, only to find that he had to turn it into a side project for a year while the brand gained momentum. Café du Cycliste then became a full-time business. They opened a concept store in Nice, and it's proven popular with both professional riders and everyday riders, leading them to open a store in London and in Mallorca. They've been recognized as one of the fastest growing French companies for three years in a row. They've been featured in Vogue, Esquire and GQ, and they've been stocked in fashion retailers like Mr. Porter. This is a must listen if you're building a fashion or e-commerce project. It's also a wonderful episode for those of you who've started a project in furlough and now find yourselves needing to return to work. We also discuss why being an outsider can be a competitive advantage, how to decide whether to be stocked in retailers, what is really required from an entrepreneur to succeed, and whether starting your own business actually makes you feel more free. Very excited to have you on the podcast. Love Café de Cyclis. And one of the reasons that I'm excited to have you on the podcast is a couple of reasons, but I think the first one is the fact that you've had three careers, I think, so far, right? You were a professional kayaker, then you started working in marketing for an IT firm, And now, of course, 10 years into Café de Cycliste as a founder. And let's go back to when you first started it. You were working in marketing at an IT firm, a world away from cycling apparel. How did you feel when you were working there? Because 
it's such a sort of world away from what you're doing now. How I felt at that time is one of the reasons why I started Café du Cyclist. It's very far from what I'm doing today, and it's very far from what I was doing before. I didn't really belong to that world. I come from a sport background. I, I did some marketing studies, but before that, I did sports studies, and all my life, I've been just pretty much until I was 27 years old, I'm kayaking and racing in kayak every day. So my life is sport and being outside, a bit of this romantic idea of camping or living in your van and, and kayaking in the mountain. So this is my world. In IT, it was quite different. I loved it because it was very challenging. It was a, a very dynamic Silicon Valley-based company. The actual product and what we were selling was quite far from, from what I loved. After six, seven years and the responsibility grows and you sit there in meetings with people, you don't really feel like going with to have a beer after, after the meeting. For a while, this is good because you learn a lot and salary is good. At some point, you're wondering why you do that. And so that's obviously one of the reasons that led me to Café du Cycliste. It started, I believe, with you meeting a man called Andre on a ride. Yeah, absolutely. Well... When you arrive somewhere, the good thing is if you love cycling, it's better than any, any social club. Cycling is, is, is the best way to network, almost, for me. It's the best way to discover a region when you arrive somewhere on the French Riviera. Within two months, I knew the, the region better than the locals. And obviously, you look for people to ride with, and you end up riding with anyone, from your boss to, to someone you meet in, in the street because he's your neighbor. That's the beauty of cycling. So this is how I met Andre. He was the head of this uh, IT company. When he left the company, I stayed there. And in between things, he bought a cafe up in the mountains above Nice, which he named Café du Cyclist. Two years down the road, I was a bit tired of doing that job. And I wanted to, to quit and do something different anyway. And I just had a chat with Andre one evening. And I was, I've always been interested in clothing and in, in apparel. I didn't really like, and, and Andre had the same feeling, what was necessarily at that time on the market where everything had to be absolutely race fit and pretending you're a professional cyclist, which I wasn't a professional cyclist. I, I had enough of training hard to try to be the best, and this is not why I was cycling. I thought there's, there's another way to do cycling clothing, and initially it was very simple. I left my job. I told Andre, you have a bit of cash. I don't, but if you give me a bit of cash... I'll create a jersey and a bib shop for the, for the cafe. Then it, it became a side project again three years down the road because I needed uh, food on the table. <laughs> so I had to take a job half-time, which was a difficult year. Did you think it was going to turn into a business when you got involved with it? At the beginning, no. When, at, at the beginning, clearly, it was the need to be more free and the will to create something. And then after a year and a half, basically from being just an idea and a, and a need to escape from what I was doing, then I realized, okay, it's becoming a project. And then I had to go back to work because, because so then it became totally a side project. Nothing was very clear. I mean, I guess a lot of things in life arrive like this. You don't necessarily plan everything, especially when you're in a situation when, when you realize this is not what you want to do. So I was essentially bored of my job and I thought, I want to do something different. I discussed with Andre, should I join this little project and maybe I can do the clothing. I had absolutely no ambition to make it my job in the next 10 years. Obviously, I could feel that what I wanted to create had a logic that uh, we could create something different. In, like I could feel, I mean, you could call it in marketing terms, that there was a market, but never in my mind I thought, okay, this is going to be the job for the, for the next 20 years. 
actually, I left my job when my kid was just born. So I had a new baby. So it was a conjunction of things that came together, but it wasn't like a big, you know, plan. Okay, this is a strategy. Andre is going to be involved in that role. There wasn't a very calculated plan at the beginning. So how did you manage to jump straight in? Was you, how were you funding it? Um, for the first six months in France, essentially, when you're unemployed, you have uh, help from the government. So I was using a bit of the help for the government. So essentially, I didn't pay myself. I mean, the first six months, I had, uh, I had some money. Then I didn't pay myself for a year and a half. I knew it would be the case. So I, was, uh, I had a decent salary before, and I was able to do that. Uh, and then after a year and a half, I had to work. I had to make money. So I found a job in uh, IT. Pretty much the same role I had before, but for a company based in London. They were growing, but they were not sure they needed a marketing director full-time. And they liked the idea of having someone freelance half-time, and that exactly matched what I needed. So I did work for a bit more a bit more than a year for them. So doing Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, sometimes Thursdays in London on I, in IT, and then Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, obviously, on Café du Cyclist. So for a year... I basically refilled my bank account a bit. After that, we started to feel that maybe I could start to pay myself, like, of course, minimum salary. So just, just enough to pay the rent and pay the food. So it took essentially three years before I could actually get a bit of a, of a financial compensation. And I didn't initially understood the timescale that I was going to face because when you create a business, Maybe it's just an idea and it's going to last a year. And if it lasts a year, it was a fun experience or a bad experience. But if it lasts more than a year, you have to realize, and I didn't necessarily know, that it's not going to take one year or two years or not even three years before you can actually make a living out of it. Like a project like that, if it's a success, it's still going to take a long time. A year ahead seems so far that you don't even want to think about it. So because of that, you don't really realize that, yes, a year ahead is very far, but actually you're in it for 10 years so <laughs> if, it's a, if it's a success. So yes, that's, that's what one of the things that took me a while to realize that, okay, no, I'm in it. After three years, no, there's something there. There's, there's ups and downs, but there's something. It's far from being a, a stable situation. I'm sure there are some people building side projects or passion projects that aren't making money but at the time, but are kind of, you know, in the early phases. And I think it's an interesting reminder to those people who are building something during this very difficult period. It's okay to go back into work, you know, afterwards. It's it's not like a it's not a failure of an entrepreneur. And I think it's it's very interesting when you kind of go into those early phases because as you say, I think there is this expectation, especially for businesses that you know don't go down the investment route, that they could be like, you know, profitable immediately. It's a great kind of reminder to people that actually it's a complicated time. It was good for me to go back to work a little bit. After a year, I had enough of it and it was tiring, all the travels. And But at the beginning, it was nice to have my... Because of the first years, the first two years, I mean, I guess the first five, your head is always on it and it's, it's quite difficult. So stepping back a little bit was a bit refreshing. In a way, it put things in perspective as well. Because when you get involved into a project like that, suddenly it becomes everything and you know it's it's nice to remember okay well if you know if it doesn't work or if it fails or if i can't cope with it and if i'm if it's too hard for me then so be it you know so it it did put things a bit in perspective and do you think it made you better at your 
main job or your paid job at the time because there's a bit of research that says that when you have a side project yes it was slightly bigger than that at that point but there's research that says that it can actually increase your engagement at work I think partly because of what you're saying it's like this takes the pressure off both sides of the coin Hmm, that's a good question very likely more efficient I would say one of the issue when you get totally involved in a job and and you want to make a career there maybe you lost track of practicality of, of how much time you need to spend there and why you're there and how efficient you need to be and, and what other things you do that are just for whatever reason, but are not that productive. When I went into that thing, I almost felt like I was better in that job than I was before because I knew why I was doing it. I, I knew where to focus. I, I wasn't wasting time because I wasn't trying to essentially impress people, do the political side of it. It's just very practical because when you work, all the political side of the work and all you trying to place yourself in the company, this is not very productive. So you, you sort of top up your income and you, and you get a bit of perspective working at this similar role in London. When did you make the decision to go fully on Café de Cicliste? Were you looking for like a revenue goal? Were you looking for a gut feeling? For us, it was the sale. I mean, the, the sale that proved that I could start within the year to get a like a, a small salary the the idea that the concept was good and that there was a future for this for what we were doing i was convinced um at that time even when i took that job the only thing that i was missing is the ability to actually live from it we were profitable actually this company has been profitable from day one which is easy when you don't pay yourself we, we didn't go the route of the investors and when a company is losing money for a few years before it becomes profitable. It, it really started like a family project. Andre did put a bit of money at the beginning, essentially to buy the product and the stock. The idea was to do the clothing rent of the cafe initially. The idea was not to try to become the next massive cycling clothing company. So as a result, we didn't think, okay, we need to invest that amount of money at a loss for the first three years. We were doing the cycling clothing and we needed to pay for the cycling clothing. We were buying like a very old-fashioned, simple way of approaching business. I mean, it's still been like that up, up to today. Today is a bit different, but we're still, we're still there. Every, everything we do is financed by the, by the profit we make from, uh, from our selling our product. So did it start, when it was a cafe, did it start as, oh, it's just like an extra revenue stream for the cafe to have a line of clothes? Or was there always a plan to kind of spin it off as a separate business? I mean, in my mind, it was never about the cafe. It was about the, the apparel. This cafe, by the way, has been sold a few, a few years back and we moved into a much bigger in Nice, much nicer. My idea was to have essentially fun, um, create something that I found interesting, cycling apparel that I liked. You wanted to do this cycling apparel idea. Obviously, you are from a sports background, as you say, and you have zero experience at this point in fashion. How did you feel kind of going straight into it? What were the first things you did? You know, were you aware of your weaknesses and what you needed to learn about? And, and how did you fill those gaps? Yeah, yeah, I mean, I was pretty aware of my weaknesses because I knew nothing. <laughs> never been in clothing industry. I've never been in the fashion industry. I've never been in the apparel industry. And I've never been working for a company that was direct to consumer. I've always been working B2B in the IT. And my job before was always selling to enterprise. So basically, I had no knowledge of any of that. I just started from, from scratch. The beginning was a bit difficult because when, when the idea came, okay, we're going to do it. And then I was sitting there with my, with my paper and I was like, 
taking pictures of cycling jersey and thinking, okay, now what do I do? So it, I had to start from, from the very beginning. So I had some friends who work in fashion. I had a never-ending talk with them to understand how the thing works. How do you make a product? I, I went on all the trade shows, fabric trade shows, asking million questions to every fabric provider, contacted factories, discussed with factories, ended up understanding roughly what you need. The factory need a, a tech pack package with all the information of what you want them to do. So I then I contacted at the beginning, I contacted a freelance uh, designer who helped me to put my ideas into a drawing and then into a tech pack and discuss with the factory. But it was essentially just starting from scratch, which I mean, it sounds very American to say, or very cliche to say nothing is impossible, but it's, there's, a, there's a reality in it. I think a lot of entrepreneur, the entrepreneur is, is believing in, in yourself because outside, of course, everything is difficult. Everything, most of what you're doing, you've never done it before. The secret is, I think, that for sure if you don't try, you're, gonna, you're going to fail. But, but most of the things you can learn, everybody who knows how to do something, learn it from somewhere. If you're interested, if you're passionate, if you're not worried to look stupid because you're going to go to fabric maker asking them to make a jersey and, and very quickly they will realize that you don't even know what the difference is between a, a woven fabric or a knitted fabric, you know, some really basic stuff. What is the difference? <laughs> um, well, there's two ways to make a fabric. Either either you, you knit it, like the image you have of your grandmother knitting. So it's one yarn that's basically making loops into loops and it makes a jersey, so a, a knit fabric. Or you can wave it like there's many different yarn that are waved into, you know, lines. Two different ways to make a fabric. In cycling, most of what we use is, is knitted. But it's the same in every field. In every field, you arrive and you know nothing. Doing a, lo- doing a lot of research, obviously, not to feel too stupid when you talk to someone. That's the number one thing. That doesn't change. That really doesn't change as you grow because there's always feel when you know nothing and you start discussing with people who are making accessories and suddenly you have 10 years experience in apparel, but you have very little in accessories. So it actually, it actually never stopped. So going from being a competitive athlete, I guess you're focused on competition. Are there more sort of similarities? For me, there's a lot of similarities in both worlds because... An athlete, like a professional athlete, you see him on TV when he wins, but actually he's got 25 years behind that. You, you, you don't become a champion overnight. You have to work really hard and, and there's way more failure. Before you win a race, you've essentially lost hundreds or thousands. So for me, it's quite, it's quite similar. And the only thing that drives you is that you, you are confident. And you, when I work now, a lot of time when I work with ex-athletes, they are self-driven, so you don't necessarily need to motivate them every day when they have a goal. Most of the amateur sport or smaller sports like kayak or mini sport, you're pretty, you're pretty much on your own. You have a coach that tells you what you should do and you have a training program, but you know, no one comes and wakes you up in the morning at five to make sure they're going to do it. So you have to be self-driven. You have to be accepting to work a lot because you know that nothing comes for free, essentially. So yeah, I find there's quite a, quite a number of similarities that help me going through the early early stages that makes sense i think you have to get comfortable with rejection you need to get um, you need to cultivate a growth mindset and seeing everything as a learning experience i know that uh athletes meant to be very good specifically at sales because it's so full of rejection (laughs) i would love to hear an example of when you felt the most embarrassed talking to kind of seasoned professionals about you know something they've been doing for i'm sure in many cases 30 40 years were there any points where you were just like, oh, this is... Or had you done enough research? 
Ah, oh, there's so many. <laughs> Negotiation. When when you start talking to retailers or you don't even know how how they calculate the the margins. So you go to them and you, you know you don't even know their language and, and you're here and you're supposed to sell your clothes and you, you don't know what's what is the normal markup. You don't know how they calculate their markup. It happens every day. There's millions, hundreds, <laughs> hundreds of times. But I'm not worried about facing that. I'm not worried about that because I start from the principle that people in front of me are just not better than me. They've just done this before. I like to listen and, and learn what, what I can learn, but I'm, I'm not worried about being weak in front of someone who knows more than me. Maybe again, it comes from sport when I don't admire people for their position. It's interesting. It's come up before in the first episode of this podcast with Louise, who are they are a candle maker and they have a bunch of different stores and an online store and everything. And uh, he said something very similar. One of the founders, Nico, he said, "We all boil with water." I think it's such a great perspective to have, which is, you know, no one is born superior, or everyone's learned something somewhere. And I think super kind of useful advice for people who are starting out and feeling out of their depth. I suppose. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Absolutely. We're all made out of, out of water. And, and yes, at the beginning, you, you don't know, but no one's better than you in essence. So there's no reason to be impressed. I totally agree. Made out of water. That's another one. I love that. <laughs> so many water analogies. Thinking about your um, getting into retailers as an example, because you're in, I think, over 20 countries in places like Indonesia, in Thailand, in um, countries in Europe. Um, in America, what's the process of finding these stockists? In the beginning, I was actively trying to find retailers. It was really hard because nobody is interested in your brand when your brand is unknown and you've got a, a one yes for 100 no. And actually, very quickly, the online sales started to grow and I realized that it was way more efficient use of my time to try to grow the sales on that side than facing all those rejections. And actually, it proved to be efficient because only when your brand becomes more has more traction, people will listen to you. But it's quite difficult to do the early day sales job when your product is not really known. For a long time, we simply stopped. We didn't work really hard on finding new retailers. We focused on our online platform. And then naturally, no, most of the shops we work with are, are coming to us naturally. We don't really, we still today, we don't proactively look for new shops. We actually, it's difficult for us, and this is getting more into business, but um, we think it's difficult to be in shops and to control what the brand looks like in shops when we are based in Nice and we don't have teams in all those countries, Indonesia, US, or even in Germany. We much prefer work with a very few number of shops that we at least are able to talk to on the phone and upfront making sure that they are the right retailers for us and they, they convey the right feeling for our brand and the right experience. So we're actually, the, re the reality is we don't really actively look for retailers. We, we answer the incoming calls, which usually are the best because a retailer needs to like your products. I mean, there's no point being in all the shops if, 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 if it's to sit on a, on a hanger and, and people who are in the shop don't even know your brand or think your brand is interesting. Of course, it's, a, it's an easy position to be in because we don't rely on retail to run our business. The retailers for us are just very nice partner that we, of course, we're happy to sell, that we're always happy to sell, but we're also happy to have them as uh, advocate of the brand. 
It's interesting because I guess increasingly these, you know, stores or retailers become kind of showcases for the brand. You know, that's why people lease or, or buy um, flagship stores in sort of capital cities. But then there's also the question, I think, of listing your brand and your products on, I don't know, the word would be like aggregate fashion aggregators. I know you guys on Matches Fashion and you're also on Mr. Porter. Yes. Was that a decision that you took lightly or was there a lot of thinking? Yeah, it was a, it was a, a weird decision to make. I think it's, we're happy to be there, absolutely delighted to be there. When they contacted us, I was very surprised first because I was wondering why do those people want to sell our product? We normally don't sell online on other platforms. It doesn't really match our, our strategy. But on the other hand, our vision of cycling is cycling cannot just be one thing. This is, this is why we are here, because we like the fact that cycling is, is everything. Some people race the Tour de France. That's one side of cycling. But cycling is a social activity. My dad, he, he's been cycling for years. I think the most interesting part of it is he's meeting his mate every weekend for cycling. And I guess it's at least 50% of the reason why he cycles. Instead of going to the pub, he goes, he goes cycling with them. So it's a social thing. A lot of people are cycling for adventure, to travel, to commute, obviously, to lose weight because their doctor told them you need to, they need to exercise a little bit. There's a million reasons to cycle. And this is what we like. So... Because this is what we tried to push, we thought it's actually nice to, you know, look outside of the tradition. And yes, we're a cycling brand and these guys seems to be purely fashion. But maybe it's actually a good thing. Well, first, because they stock nice brands, so it doesn't hurt our brand at all to be there. It's actually quite beneficial. And on, on top of that, it just shows that cycling can have different face. And if you're a wealthy businessman and you buy your expensive clothes on Mr. Porter and, and it's instead of you know buying a massive TV or buying a new Porsche, you want to buy five expensive bikes and, and this is how you like to spend your weekend now, we love this idea. We want, we, we've been then approached by a lot and we want to limit it because, again, we don't, we don't want to be sold by, by everyone. But I think the idea of the brand being sold in different type of place and, and all coming well together is, is an idea that we like. You very kindly sent me a gilet and it's beautifully designed. And I love the fact that you still design the products yourself. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, it's still, it's still me. It hasn't changed much. Uh, yeah, it's true. I still design the product. We have people in the team helping me. So essentially, I have great product developer that finalize with me um, the design and my ideas to put them into a version that people can understand. That still is uh, my job and it hasn't really changed. We do that a lot uh, starting from the fabrics. We start from, of course, the need. So we want to create a product which answer. Um, a need in the, in the range and there's a lot which is actually the fun part for me i find is that there is a lot of technical constraint in what we do a, a gilet like the one you have needs to break the wind but it needs to fold very small so it, it can fit into the back pocket of your jersey for some of the product it will be breathability wicking capacity when you sweat etc so there's a lot of constraints i don't see myself as a at all as a fashion designer at all at all at all there's no way I can consider myself a designer because if you give me a blank paper, I don't know what to draw. I have no idea. I know how to make a technical product look how I find it interesting, answering the, the need of, of our customers so to help them enjoy the sport. So I don't know if it can be considered designing. And then what I love is, is also 
considering the fabrics, because I think that fabric is, is a world I didn't know. I mean, everything here is, is a world I didn't know, but the fabric is, is one part of, of, of this business that I find fascinating, talking to fabric uh, makers, understanding how it's made, the variety of what you can do with one given fabric and how versatile a fabric can be is very interesting. So it has a strong role in the, in the design process. And this really hasn't changed much from, from the beginning. I consider cycling as an outdoor sport in general when I'm with my dad cycling up called the Turini above Nice. And, and we're having a chat. I feel clearly more like someone having a hike with his dad in the mountain and having a chat than I feel like uh, the Tour de France winner on his bike. So for me, it's, we're, we're just outdoor. And as such, I look at the outdoor world much more than I look at the, at the cycling world for inspiration. The first garment we made was back in the day in the cafe up there. We did a beep short and the jersey, the beep short actually lasted for quite long. We only, this beep short has been in our ranch since last year. We made a cycling jersey made of a, a blend of merino wool and uh, polyester, which we still do use a mix of uh, different fabrics. So the first jersey was a merino wool blend, I remember. And then very quickly we did uh, stripes, which now we see a lot now in cycling, but back in the day it was unusual to have stripes on cycling jersey. Of course, we're French, so we, we did some French marinier or navy stripes, uh, Breton stripes, uh, we call it. On that first ever garment, what was your process? So did you have like a lookbook, like a Pinterest or, you know, like a selection of styles that you were sort of taking pictures of people in the street or where did you get that first inspiration from? I still do exactly the same today and I don't know how other people work, but this is how I do. I just look at a high number of different things, taking inspiration from everything. It could be, could be all the sport, it could be a tennis polo shirt, it could be a fashion apparel brand, a mix of all things that I find interesting, or it could be a texture. And this is why I like starting from the fabric, because very often when I see a fabric and I see the texture of it, very often I start from that. I find that so interesting. That could, you know, be the base of a, of a design. But yes, mainly, mainly compiling high number of uh, visuals and, and things that I like. When you launched that first piece in quite a traditional market of France, especially Nice, Côte, Côte d'Azur, did you worry about what the reception would be producing something that wasn't this kind of traditional uh, cycling apparel? Or were you quite confident that you knew it would be well received? I was worried sales was yes. I wasn't worried if it was right or wrong, but yeah, I was worried about what people would think about it in the like essentially would anyone want to buy it? Yes, absolutely. But when we started, we didn't really sell a lot in France. When we we had our little cafe up there, we sold a few products to essentially some friends and some regulars, and then we built a website. And immediately when the website was built, we started selling, uh, but not in France. It was really weird. One of the first order was in Japan. I can't remember if it's the first one or the second order we ever had on our website was from Japan. I still remember that evening when I couldn't believe it. Someone from Japan has bought on our website. And essentially, for the first years, it was mainly uh, non-French, uh, non-French buyers. And honestly, sometimes I'm wondering how they found our stuff because we had no real marketing activity. We were just, you know, we were on a few very niche blogs. 
I had reason to be worried if I was only selling in France. Yes, luckily the internet was here and we could reach a, a wide audience. So there was a few people who liked what we did at the beginning. Would have been a traditional business sold in shops locally, like most brands start. It would have been a failure for sure. And you brought up your dad. So you've spoken, I think, about your dad a bit in the past, and he's a very keen cyclist. And I think I read somewhere that you sent him some of your early designs and you found that he wasn't wearing them. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, well, that's again the tradition. You know, he, Yeah, he's always been a cyclist, a leisure cyclist, but he still is. He rides every day pretty much. French market was quite difficult for us to enter because the tradition of what you look like on a road bike is quite strong. And actually, it's quite strong in all the countries where the cycling racing was born, Italy, in Spain, a bit in Belgium. All those countries have a very strong road cycling racing tradition, like any tradition. When you do something a bit differently, they are not the first one to jump on it. So yes, I was sending stuff to my dad. The beginning was a bit surprised that I left my job because it felt more like a, a weird leisure idea. Still, he's always been supporting me, whatever I did when I was just decided I wanted to be a pro kayaker and there's no money to make in kayaking. As usual, he liked the idea that I was moving into something new. But yes, so he was taking the, the garment and saying, oh, they look nice. But then I was calling my mom and asking her if he wear them. And no, he wasn't. No, he's changed. No, his friends are asking me for discount code. And I bring my dad uh, cycling clothing, and I know now I wear them. But that's that's a good image of what we what we face at Cafe du Cyclist when we when we started doing what we do. But that's also why it's been why it's been a success because I'm convinced there was no room for us to do to do road cycling the way it's been made before. I wasn't from a cycling background. I didn't have all this knowledge and all these ideas of how things should be done. And even in our team now, of course, we have a lot of passionate cyclists. But not only, we also have people coming from different backgrounds. So I think that's, that was actually an, an asset for us. Like a kind of outsider perspective. You're looking at it with less of the baggage of what should be done and rather what could be done. Yes, absolutely. You have to learn and you don't, you don't see the market. It's, sometimes it's a very simple thing. You don't see the designs. You, you don't see all of that with a cyclist tradition. It helps to do things differently. Are your parents entrepreneurs? No. No, my dad's a cardiologist or was a cardiologist. And my mom was a sport teacher. No entrepreneur in the family. I don't know how this came to me. I think sport has a lot to do with it. But I, I suppose you're not, I'm not sure you learn to be an entrepreneur. I think you, I would think it's something you have, something you have in you. Doesn't mean it's easy. You will face a lot of, difficulties but yes i think it's something that you have you want to do things differently and you you want to be more free i think this is this is what makes you an entrepreneur if people are listening and they're thinking to themselves am i an entrepreneur do i have this dna i, I agree with you in part and then on the other side i think everyone has the potential to do entrepreneurial things the reality of being an entrepreneur is pretty down to earth it's, it's very simple I remember I had the products in cardboard in my apartment. And when I was going on holiday, we had four different products. So I was 
traveling with my products in the boot of my car. And when I had an order online, because I was going, I don't know, in Hosego for two weeks for surfing or whatever. And in the evening, I would just, you know, pack those uh, things and go to the local post and I was shipping from wherever I was on holiday. So yeah, it's very stupid and pragmatic at the beginning. So yes, big stories are nice, but the reality is very, very often quite simple. As an entrepreneur, what do you do? You, you take risks. You're very often, at the beginning at least, alone in what you're doing. That's one of the strong things. You stress a lot or you, you, know, you, you stress. There's beautiful things, like there's moments where it's great and there's moments when it's quite difficult. And at the beginning, the only thing that you have is the confidence in yourself you know, to continue. So if you're self-driven and if you have that, I think you have a strong asset. If you know and you, that you can handle those highs and downs and, and you, know, you accept that, you need to accept that this is how it's going to be. And if you have the mentality to deal with that, I think, I think that's the most important. Then the rest is, is work. What it means to be an entrepreneur is to accept those, those ups and downs and be able to, to focus and, and believe even when it feels a bit, you know, very often you wake up and you're wondering why you do that or you, don't, you need to be able to continue and believe it's 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 the right thing to do we talk on this podcast quite a lot about methods of maintaining self-belief because one thing that is maybe a myth in entrepreneurship is that it comes very naturally and easily to people as you say you know people still experience the ups and the downs it's not like you're immune to them do you have and i imagine you've built some of these through you know your career in sports do you have anything that you do consciously or intentionally to mitigate the damage that those ups and downs do? I think I've learned in my sport career to just bury myself in work. And, you know, when it's, when it's hard, I just handle it. And, and sometimes it's not good mentally because I'm, I, I put myself sometimes in difficult uh, situation. But I've done it for so many years and this is how I approach sport. But essentially, I replicate this in when I started. I mean, no, it's, it's different. But when I started it and in those difficult moments, I just replicated that. So I was just, I'm in it. I know why I'm in it. I'm going to walk. And even if it's hard, I just continue. And sometimes not even really knowing why. Not necessarily with a big plan in mind, just because it's a mentality that I've, I've been applying for many years. So I was just applying it there. And it did work. Um, sometimes there is there's some side damage and it's not always easy, but, but yes, it did, uh, it did work. And I think I got this from, um, from the sport. The other thing is the ability to accept the fact that you have to deal with a lot of different things. A lot of them you will be really bad at, or you've never done before, or it's not your thing. You could think it's easy for someone to have a great idea and to be really good at designing cycling clothing. On top of that, you will have to negotiate, you will have to negotiate with the factory, you will have to be a salesperson, you will have to talk to the bank, to do so many different things. And of course, you will be really bad at some. There is some that you will hate, the finance, for example, for me, I'm the admin. But there's no other option at the beginning. On the ups and downs, because I think the downs take two forms. One is the kind of overwhelm and feeling out of your depth and the kind of thing that you're talking about, which is loads of things to do not liking all of them burying yourself in work probably helps and solves that one but I think the other type of down is this existential what am I doing the why the kind of 
this has been tough for so long. Why am I still doing it? And I think burying yourself in work with that may not have the same result. Yeah, the first one is, yeah, when I agree with you, burying yourself in work, like very often you don't see the exit because there's, there's so many steps and you just have to take them one by one. That's clearly from the sport. The other one is where I'm going. Why am I doing that? I think what helps in there is that I, I didn't like my previous job environment, or at least not for, not for a long, long-term period. And I'm convinced that this is overall a much more interesting thing to do. And I think there is a logic for me and there is a, an aim for me. Funnily enough, I did the business school, but I never really wanted to be... Till today, I don't see myself as a businessman. I still define myself as a kayaker, almost. I know essentially that what makes me happy in life is still being outside on my bike. I know that for me, this is still what makes, what will and what does make me happy today. And I'm not necessarily being a businessman as, as, as such. There's great things and I'm, it's amazing to grow a company and, and some success makes you really happy. But that's not the, I would say that's not the aim. So essentially creating a company, I know that the overall goal is interesting helping people to be using their bike, pushing the idea of, of using bikes more, of being outside. Because for me, cycling is really an outdoor sport. I try to push more people to do what I think makes me happy in life. This is why maybe at the end, when it's too hard, you don't stop because I know why I started it, because this was much more interesting to me than what I was doing before. So stopping would be, <laughs> would obviously ask, the question of, okay, so what do I do now? Having an interesting job, if it's not this one, this one is perfect. Do you still manage to do much cycling and outdoor sports? Because it's now a multi-million pound business, right? Yes, yes, it's a multi-million pound business, which is, in grand scheme of things, it's still a small company. But I still do practice sport whenever I can. The lunchtime is the number one riding moment for me and with colleagues and friends. Nice, at the bottom of beautiful climb, it's the best place in the world to cycle. So the weekends, yes, we live, we live very close to the mountain. I can actually do today a bit more than I did in the early days of Café de Cyclis because the early days are quite time-consuming. It starts to get better when you get skilled people to actually do jobs at which you are really bad. When you get people to help you on those, then suddenly your life changes a bit. You can do a bit more cycling. So yes, yes, for sure. How big is the team now? So we are all together 25. We have a small office, mainly a, mainly a marketing office in London with uh, five people now. For a few years, our office, because we were only a few people, the office was still based in the cafe, a sort of mezzanine above the cafe with uh, five desks. And we were basically in the cafe every day with the customers. And now we've moved into a proper, I mean, it's been a few years now, we've moved into a proper headquarter. The rest of the rest of them are in this. What is your vision for Cafe du Cycliste in the future? You you already got a global presence. You've already got stockists across the world. What's what's next? I think there is still a lot of room for what we're trying to achieve, which is to put people on bikes and to make them enjoy all forms of cycling and and enjoy the outside. I mean, a strong part of what I like in this is that we push people to actually get out of their apartment, out of their house and, and be outside and just be outside exercise in any form. And more and more, we are doing products that are not necessarily 
for cycling. So for the before, the after, or for the days when there is no cycling. And this is working quite well, that range. But in essence, I don't see any reason to change anything. We are a cycling brand. We are going to continue promoting the idea that people need to get on their bike as much as they can and, and that it can make them really happy because it makes, I mean, it makes me happy. So I want to think that can work for so many other people. I'm, I'm still today, if I stop Cafe Cyclist one day, so I think it was this. I, I just wanted to go and try to create something and build something. That was the reason. It wasn't necessary to create a business. Do you think it's true that being an entrepreneur makes you more free? Or do you think it's an illusion? <laughs> I think having an entrepreneur experience will make, I mean, today, so just talking for myself, I'll feel more free today than it was before. The beginning, I would say, I thought it would make me less, more free. But the first three years, I felt I was, even if in principle it makes you more free, the, the early stage, I didn't really feel free at all. I, I feel more like locked at some, at some time. But now I really feel differently. Not only because our, our business is working and profitable. And beside the business side, I feel more free because I, I feel that if this stops, I... I I can do something else. I I feel less worried about changing directions, making decisions, and all of this. I, I remember I discussed one with friend about what it means for me to not live in Paris anymore because early days I was living for 10 years in Paris. And when you live in a big city, you're very attached to your life in Paris. And now I'm on the French Riviera, which is very exciting from the weather perspective, but sometimes a bit more boring than a big city. And actually, when you think about it, how much of what was in Paris did you really use? Not so much, but the, the idea that all of it is available and you can do all of that, this is what makes you want to be in Paris. And I think it's a bit the same. The idea that now I'm, I'm not worried anymore if, if I need to do something different, if I need to make a decision. Well, it's like positive and negative freedom, isn't it? Freedom to do something and freedom from doing something else. You're not free from the pressures because, you know, you've just created a business that you're responsible for, but you are free to maybe do it again or... You can... Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's exactly that. You're free because you're not worried anymore about a few things. I think for me, what makes you not free is that you you, you worry about this, about the revenue, about... Um, is this the right thing to do? Is this what I want to do as a career? If I go there, is this the right decision? Because when I have done five years in IT, this is what makes you not free in your head. When you've done an experience and you are more confident and less worried, so that even if it's only in your head, you feel more free. For me, it's more having been an entrepreneur that makes you free. It liberates you from all those worries that you have when you're younger and you work in a company and you're worried about your career and and what's the goal? Getting away from that is freedom. It's very French that we're talking about this because it's reminding me of Sartre, uh, an existential kind of definition of freedom, you know, which is around taking responsibility for the fact that we are radically free. It's quite a, I think it's quite a privileged uh, perspective in some ways of kind of what freedom is because I don't think everyone is free in that same way. But I think that mindset of feeling free to create in, in the ways that you want is, is more available than most people think. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that, yes. But suddenly you realize when you're young and you're a student and you start your career, like the scope of possibilities is very wide. So you feel very free. And then the more you, you grow in your job and the older you get, suddenly you feel that 
and and it's not just a job. I mean, your life and you have kids, and you know suddenly you feel that the scope of possible is is narrowing. And, and in a way, being having an entrepreneur experience, I, I mean, for me, it's so far successful, but maybe even a non-successful, reopens some scope of of what's possible in in your mind, maybe. It makes sense, the analogy with the cities. You're right. It's just about potential, isn't it? Or the possibility of doing something. Absolutely. Yeah, no, totally agree. You're not going to use whatever you do. You're going to only do very, very small amount of things compared to all the possibilities. So it's just the idea that it's all possible that, that makes you free. You're never going to be doing everything from surfing to philosophy to cutting wood. To, like, there's too many things to do. It's just the idea that all of it is accessible that makes you free. Thank you so much. It was such an interesting conversation. And if people want to find uh, Café du Cycliste, where's the best place to find you? We have three shops. Our home is in Nice, so the best place to find us is, is on the port. That's where, that's where you touch Café du Cycliste. Otherwise, you can you have a shop in, in London, uh, in Archery Lane. We have a shop in Mallorca and obviously... We are online. This is where most people come because not everybody is able to visit those three beautiful places. Thanks for listening to the Out of Hours podcast. If you've been a listener for a while uh, or you enjoyed this episode, please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. And if you want to join the side project Sprint, head to outofhours.org slash courses.